You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. This morning we're going to plow on in Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, There's a story about a frog that fell into a pail of milk. Uh, Just sounds bad right from the beginning, doesn't it? Frog fell into a pail of milk and just tried and tried and tried to get out. Couldn't get any leverage. Tried climbing up the side, but the pail was too slippery because of the milk. And finally the frog has an epiphany. And he begins just paddling and paddling and swimming and swimming in circles until after a a long time of this, he's churned the milk into butter, jumps to his freedom. Great story, right? This is the kind of story we tell if we need to be motivated a little bit or inspired. Um, The moral of the story, obviously, is just keep paddling, just keep working, just keep thinking, and you'll make it. This story is very indicative of American culture because we're a working hard, just keep pushing, just, just keep trying and you'll make it kind of a people. And, and that's, that's an okay thing until it begins to uh, bleed over into how we think about our faith. Uh, and the problem is that American Christianity often finds itself with this mindset of just keep working, just keep striving, just keep paddling, if you will, and eventually you're going to make it. But the Apostle Paul proclaims that the righteousness of God is through faith. It's a gift. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So, what do we do with this? Paul has been establishing in Romans the righteousness of God is through faith in Christ. Well, this morning, um, we're going to talk about the realization of that faith. We're going to be in Romans chapter 4. If you were with us last week, you may have noticed we made it almost all the way through the entire chapter of Romans 3. Well, we saved it for today because it sort of helps us jump into chapter 4. So if you will turn with me to Romans chapter 3, if you're going to use the Bible app, um, you can go to more and the events and you will find the brook and you can follow along there with us. But if you look with me in Romans chapter 3, again, Paul is, is established here, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It is now available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. So now look at verse 27. Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So, there are no grounds for boasting if we're justified by faith. 
makes sense, right? You and I did nothing to acquire it, did nothing to earn it. What do we have to boast about in and of ourselves? And so all of our prideful boasting, all of our self-centered righteousness is absolutely meaningless. Through our justification by faith, we are sanctified in and through and for good works. Again, if you weren't with us last week, um, I hope you were able to tune in or you've gone back and watched the message. We laid out on the whiteboard the clarity that we are justified by faith in Christ, which leads to our sanctification. So these things come again in and through and for good works. So Paul, he's established this righteousness comes through faith. This is how we are justified. Then as a result of this, these works come in our life. Well, moving into Romans chapter 4, Paul is now going to give us an example of what it looks like to live by faith. And he's going to use the person of Abraham. So look with me in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And here Paul quotes David from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Abraham is the father of our faith. That's kind of how we refer to him. The most revered patriarch in all of Israel. So Paul uses Abraham because he is the first and the primary example of justification by faith. And that's what makes it all the more disturbing and ironic that the Jews look to Abraham and believe that he is the greatest example of justification by works. They look at him and believe that he's the greatest example of working for our salvation. Let me give you some examples of how we know and understand that this is what the Jews believe. It all has to do with extra-biblical writings. First of all, you have the Mishnah. Well, the Mishnah explains that the Jews believe Abraham performed all of the acts of the law before the law was ever even given. The book of Jubilees um, proclaims that Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds. And then the prayer of Manasseh says that Abraham nowhere in his life ever had any need of repentance. So you can understand as a Jew, being heavily influenced by the extra-biblical writings, the conclusion that you come to is that 
Abraham was justified by his works and is our greatest example of how to be justified. This is the one that we should follow. What does Paul say? Paul asks this question, how was Abraham justified? And as Paul asks how Abraham was justified, he poses probably the most important question that you and I can ask in any and every situation and circumstance of our life. Look at verse 3. Paul simply asks the question, what does the scripture say? What a great question. Whatever you face this week in your life, what a great question to guide you. What does the scripture say? Well, in looking at the scripture, Abraham gives us the answer. The scriptures say it wasn't Abraham's work. It was his faith. It was his faith. Verse 9, Romans 4 verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then... Was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of what? The works? No. Who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, it did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Abraham was not counted righteous because of his works. Paul says that he was not counted righteous because of his circumcision. He was not counted righteous by keeping the law or adhering to it. He was counted as righteous because of his faith. These were all credited to him, counted to him, if you will. In fact, they didn't even take place until years after God's declaration of Abraham's righteousness. So what do we understand in this? Same thing that we understood for ourselves last week, that Abraham's justification came before his sanctification. Just like us. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was his faith. So if Abraham is our greatest example of faith, I think a great question that you and I might ponder every once in a while would be, how great, how vast, how amazing does this faith have to be? Like, how much do you need? How great does your faith 
have to be for it to be like Abraham's. You probably know this, but some people have had very, very, very strong faith in very, very, very thin ice. And they haven't even lived to tell you about it. Those people have actually died by faith. But when we look at what Paul has said throughout Romans, I want you to take note of something. Paul doesn't just say the righteous will be saved by faith. If you remember back in Romans 1 when he quotes Habakkuk, Paul proclaims the righteous shall live by faith. So what does this faith look like? How much of it do we have to have? How great does my faith have to be today to be counted as righteous? Well, friends, let me submit to you this morning The significance does not lie in the size of your faith, but in the object of it. It's not about how much you have. It's about what it is that you're actually trusting in. Let's think about the size, the amount of our faith, and how this might get us down the road that we weren't thinking about going down. Let's say that I save up my money and I buy this incredible new car and it's shiny and it's beautiful and I wash it like every other day. And of course I drove it here today. And so when we're all through gathering this morning, I'm going to go get in my nice shiny car. I'm not even going to have to turn the key because they don't do that anymore, right? I'm just going to push start and I'm going to cruise on home mindlessly, thoughtlessly thinking about whether or not it's going to get me there. But what I didn't know is some devious thug came and took all the lugs out of my wheels and halfway home, all of my wheels fall off and my car flips over into a ditch. I had enormous faith that car was going to get me home. Now, being the loving father I am, you know, I have a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old. The 14-year-old I know... He's going to be 16 before I blink my eyes, be afraid, and he'll be driving. Being the loving dad I am, I'm sure that we're going to get him a car that, like, he won't have to worry about scratching it. It'll come with scratches. You know, it'll, it'll have all those things on it already. And looking at it, uh, maybe the car that Nathan gets, uh, every time he gets in it and turns the key, and there will be a key on this car. Um, He thinks, dear Lord, if you will just get me to the place I got to go. But see, before I bought this car, I had it checked out by my mechanic and the mechanic says, this is possibly the most mechanically sound car I've ever seen in my entire life. And it's gone 150,000 miles and it should go 250,000 more. I hope your son likes this car. He's going to be driving it a while. And even though every time he gets in it, his faith is about this big that it's going to get him there, it gets him there. Despite the, the size and the very weak amount of faith, it's not the size of the faith that matters. It's what our faith is in. And hear me, you may be one of those people even walking in here today. Yes, somebody convinced you to come and you think, I'm not really a person of faith. Oh, yes, you are. We all have faith. The eternally significant question is, in what? 
what is our faith being placed in? Look in verse 16. Paul says, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope. Paul is saying here that in spite of the fact that there was no viable, visible, logical reason to have hope, Abraham still had hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. That's the promise God made to him. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Friends, when our faith is in the one true God, when our faith is in Jesus Christ, it most certainly should be bold, but it most certainly is not blind. We without question should have bold faith when our faith is in Christ, but do not believe for a minute that that faith is blind. I think that we've been led to believe that faith in and of itself has to be completely blind. I'm just stepping out into the darkness. That is not what the scriptures teach us. Look here, right here at Romans chapter four and what Paul says about Abraham, that Abraham had these promises laid out for him by God. But it says here in verse 19 that his faith didn't weaken when he considered. When Abraham reasoned through with the brain that God gave him, the the very logical, um, the very practical, the very, very visible circumstances that he had in his life, he took those things into account and he still believed. When he considered what? That he was a hundred? good luck. And when he considered the barrenness of his wife's womb, let's see, my wife, Sarah, she couldn't have children when she was 20, couldn't have them when she was 30, didn't happen at 40, still didn't happen at 50. Eventually we gave up. But God is saying that now at 90, we're going to make this work. Okay. How does Abraham get to this place? He considered the grim reality of the circumstances that he was in. But see, Abraham understood the grim reality of his circumstances were not nearly as powerful as his God. And and I don't know what grim reality or what circumstance you and I may, may be walking through, but Abraham knew my God's power is greater than you fill in the blank this obstacle, greater than this circumstance, greater than this empirical data, greater than whatever it is, my God is greater. And so while our faith should be bold, it is absolutely not blind because we know who it is in. Look at verse 20. 
No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Would you consider that statement for a moment? Do you want to grow in your faith? I bet you do. Abraham grew in his faith as he gave glory to God. For you and for I, whatever it is that we are facing or we are walking through, if you want to grow in your faith, constantly give the glory and the praise and the honor to God. Abraham did. And he grew in his faith. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Friends, does it make sense that we believe God for salvation? We believe that the God of all creation in his son atoned for our sins and has given us life, has given us victory over sin, has given us victory over death. Does it make sense that we believe God for salvation, yet often we seem to struggle with trusting God for provision or direction? Does that make sense to you? Because it doesn't to me. Yet, here I stand or I sit very, very often doing just that. Trusting in God for the eternally significant, but then somehow in the midst of the day-to-day, possibly even insignificant, I somehow think I better get control over this or it's all going to go to hell in a handbasket. It, it doesn't make sense that we do this. And so it's worth considering the question, like, why? Or, or as we say in the South, how come? How come we struggle with this? Well, we face these obstacles all the time that, again, uh, the righteous shall be saved and justified by faith. It's like, yeah, I got that one. Well, but remember Habakkuk and Paul said the righteous will live by faith. Yeah, so on a day-to-day basis, I sometimes struggle with that one. What keeps tripping us up? What are the obstacles that keep getting in our way to faith? I asked that question out on social media the other day. Very just plain and simple. What are the greatest obstacles to your faith? I got a whole lot of answers, some of them more than others. Let's talk about a couple of them for a minute. And before I say anything else, let me preface everything I'm about to say with this. If in a moment you think that what you hear me saying is, ask God for whatever you want and he'll give it to you. That's not what I'm saying. Keep asking God and he'll give it to you. 
Or that if you've been asking God and you're not getting whatever it is you're asking for, then you obviously have just not had enough faith. I'm not saying any of those things. So if that's what you're hearing, let's chat later and get it cleared up. That said, what are the obstacles to our faith day to day? One of them that I think all of us at some point face is financial. At some point, um, we all just want to say, I wish money just didn't even exist. And a lot of it goes back to, I think, that we forget our God will supply our needs according to his riches, not ours. That Jesus said, my father cares about the flowers. My father cares about the birds, but he cares exponentially more for you. Will he not take care of your needs? We forget that the Psalms proclaim that our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I've told you before, I don't really understand what that means. But now also make sure you, you're understanding the language. God doesn't own a thousand cattle. There are lots of people, especially if you grow up in Texas where I grew up, lots of people have a thousand cattle. Nobody has cattle on a thousand hills except our God. I think at times we look at dollar signs from a temporary perspective, perspective and not an eternal. We forget that God, there is no obstacle when it comes to money or finances. But I think another side of this struggle is we very, very often think a whole lot more about what we want than what we need. My God shall supply all of my needs. And sometimes I want to send Paul a note and say, is there any chance you could change that word to wants? But no, he doesn't. And there are lots of things, you know, I could give you the whole, my kids ask for things all the time they want and they don't get them because they don't need them. I'm the same way. I mean, we all are. In Psalm 37, 4, David says something that maybe beside Jeremiah 29, 11 is probably one of the scriptures taken most out of context of all the scriptures. David says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Maybe you've been asking God to do something for a long time. And God is actually saying, I gave you my answer. I know what you want. But I know what you need as well. And and you and I, we might come back and say, but God, I am asking and I am really, really desiring this. And, and, and remember what David says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The problem is, I think somewhere we cross a line and we don't even know it and we begin to think, actually, God, my delight would be in you giving me that. And because he doesn't give us that, our delight actually turns into frustration. David says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
Because you see, when we delight ourselves in him, we begin to want what God wants. And we begin to have a greater understanding of what it is that we actually need. And we will walk by faith. Delight yourself in him. Maybe for some of us, an obstacle that we face is relational. Is there a broken relationship that you think God can't heal? And that's a rhetorical question, but it's one for you to consider. I mean, is there one that you think is just, it's just so far gone. God can't breathe new life into this. Some of us arrive at this point because we stop believing. But I think that more often than that, we arrive at this point because we never start obeying. Here's what I mean. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus essentially says, okay, let me explain to you what that law if you guys will live it out, what it will look like. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, if you find yourself at the altar about to come and worship, about to come and offer your gift, and suddenly you realize that your brother has something against you, or you have something against your brother, leave the gift at the altar. Put your dadgum hands down. Stop singing. Get up and go and be reconciled to your brother. Well, but so worshiping is actually more fun. So I think I'll just keep worshiping. And Jesus is saying to all of us, actually, you're not worshiping. Because true worship is obedience. And I think that some of us would rather keep piously praying than go and humbly reconcile. And so at times I think that we think, man, I have been praying and praying and praying for God to reconcile this. And God is going, I've told him what to do. Now it may be like nauseatingly humbling to step down that path of reconciliation. But that's the path. And, and so at times, maybe the reason that we've stopped believing is because we never started obeying. God says, you want to believe what I can do? Okay, go and be reconciled and watch what I do. We would rather just pray and God perform this magically. Also, I think we face spiritual obstacles. Sometimes we just have trouble believing. I mean, let's talk about it in terms of other people in our life, there are some of us right now that maybe you know someone who they've, they've walked away from the Lord or they've wandered off or they are just, they're consumed in, re, in rebellion against God and you're watching them make themselves more miserable. I, I would ask you to consider this morning, 
what sheep do you think that Jesus won't go after? Because he said, if I have a hundred, I will leave the 99 and go after the one. And so however long it is that you've been praying, keep praying and asking. Because if you want to know what God's desire is in terms of his sheep, it is that they would come back. It is that the prodigal would return. But now let's talk about the people in our life who they've never even come into the fold. They are lost. They have not put their faith in Christ. The person at your work, the person in your neighborhood, the person in your family. And I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed. Man, Lord, I just don't know if they're ever going to believe. I'll share with you for the 80th time to remind you and hopefully invigorate your soul of my dear sweet friend, Edna May, in Wichita, Kansas, who prayed for her brother for 50 years. That's a five and a zero. 50 years she prayed that he would come to Christ. And she witnessed to him. She shared the gospel with him. She walked a Christ-like life in front of him. For 50 years she prayed. And on that man's deathbed, our pastor, Ron Prock, walked into that man's room and led him to the Lord. Do you think that Edna May came out of there and was like, that stupid idiot, stubborn sucker, been praying for him. Now Ron comes in, takes the credit. No! She rejoiced. And I watched that lady herself die a few years later with this like glorious peace because of what she watched God do. Does God always do that? No, he does not. But do you believe that he can? Do you believe that he will? I think at times the greatest obstacle that we have in our faith is is us. And it comes back to maybe we need to stop wanting from God and we just need to begin desiring God. Friends, I believe the promise is as good now as when it came out of David's mouth and off of his pen. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Paul uses Abraham for a reason. Paul uses Abraham as a model of faith to encourage us. Why? Because Abraham was perfect as the The Jews claimed, uh, no, just the opposite. Yes, Abraham believed. Yes, Abraham had this life that was yielded to God and said, Lord, you said go, and I don't even know where that land is, but I've got my stuff and I've got my people, and we're going. The Lord said, take your son and go up that hill and sacrifice him. And Abraham took his son and took the wood and he went up the hill because he believed inside him that God would provide and God did. And I could go on and on and tell you the stories about Abraham that just make us go, yes, that's why we love Abraham. But you know what? Out here in the Brook Littles this morning, we're not and we never will teach the story of Abraham prostituting his wife Not once, but twice to save his own butt. 
Some of you right now are probably like, what? Where is this story? That's in Genesis? Yeah. Abraham is the father of our faith, and he was as colossal of a dingling at times as you and I are. Abraham had weakness, Abraham had doubt, and Abraham had sin. But Abraham had faith that God was greater than his sin, greater than the struggle, greater than the doubt. And I just want to remind you and exhort you again this morning. Some of you here, you may feel like I'm at the end of my rope with faith. And we like to hear those those stories like, well, just tie a knot in the end of your rope and keep hanging on. (laughs) It's not even about you and I hanging on. It's about knowing that he is holding on to us. And he will never leave you, never forsake you, never let go. That nothing can snatch you out of his hand. The righteous will be saved by faith. But we will also walk and live by faith. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we ask you to strengthen us. God, give us strength. Strengthen our faith. Remind us this morning that our hope, um, our satisfaction, our joy, those things are only found in you. And so, Lord, our desire today is that our delight would be in you. Lord, we ask you through your spirit this morning that you would refine us, that you would teach us what it looks like to live a life that delights in you. Lord, we ask you to strengthen our faith. And Lord, remind us today, it's not how vast and how strong that our faith may be um, on any given day or In any given season, God, it is about how strong and faithful you are. I want to ask you this morning, um, every head bowed, eyes closed. If you're here this morning and you'd say, I know. Jesus Christ is Lord over my life, that my life is hidden in Christ, that I am justified before the Father. I I know where my salvation and my hope lie. But right now, I am facing something in life that I'm having trouble having the faith to walk through. I want to ask you just to slip up your hand if you would so I can pray for you. Thank you. All over the room, thank you. Father, this morning, I pray for these who have very, very honestly said, Lord, I I need you. Lord, I pray that you would fill them today with the hope.
Father, I pray that they would stand on the righteous rock of your word. Lord, I also pray that they would not, for one more second, if they're trying to, that they would not walk through this alone, but Lord, that they would look to the body of Christ. God, that someone else would be able to carry the burden with them. I pray that today you would overwhelm them with your presence and your faithfulness. Lord, this morning I pray for those who are here that would say, I I don't really even know where I stand with my faith, period. I want to believe. pray that just like the centurion that came to you God that you would draw their heart God that you would bring them to a place of of knowing that Jesus you are the way the truth and the life that you are the good shepherd Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.